Please be seated. Take your Bibles and open with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Our reading tonight begins at the top of the chapter in 17, verse 1, and we will continue down through, I think, verse 8. Yes. Matthew 17, verse 1. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we come tonight again asking for your help in the public reading of Scripture, in the preaching of your word. Lord, we, we pray that you would help us recognize the authority that is found herein, the Holy Scriptures. It is no authority of men. It is no earthly authority. It is the authority of the living God. Lord, we pray that we would indeed rightly revere your word, that we would tremble before it, that we would also joyfully build our lives upon it and never regret having done so. Oh, Lord, come then and hold us fast. Hold us fast to it. Open our hearts to it. Let us not merely listen, let us hear. Give us ears for such, O Lord. Help us tonight. Lord, come and help us. We are certainly in need of it, Lord. Help your children, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 17, beginning at verse 1. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is God's word. Beloved, it is a truth about us that we are looking for something. Every Every week we're looking for it. Every year we're looking for it. We are always looking for something that transcends normal human experience. But until we see the glory of Jesus, we will only, in this pursuit, in this hunt, in this quest, we will only be attracted to the lesser lights 
of human glory. This attraction to the lesser lights of human glory will always keep us chasing. We will always be chasing to take something that's part of normal human experience and magnify it, even deify it. Make it bear a weight that it was never created to bear. The scripture calls this idolatry, covetousness. This attraction to the lesser lights of human glory keeps us chasing perhaps a glory we envision in relationships. If I could only have this kind of spouse or these kinds of friends or a glory we envision in retirement, if I could only have this much money when I retire and these many years to live and enjoy it, or a glory we envision in our careers, if I could only reach this rung on the ladder, or a glory we envision in our families, if I, could, if I could only have parents like this, or if I could only have kids like this, or a glory we envision in our lifestyle, if I could, if I could only live in that place and that way. We are looking It's a common human condition of fallen men. We are looking to transcend normal human experience by making the normal into the ultimate. This is what Jesus means when he said in the last chapter, verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You will always be attracted to the lesser lights of human glory until you see his glory. Well, here in our text tonight, our Lord Jesus takes his disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration as it has become known in the church. And he is showing there his disciples his glory because of that which he just said at the end of the previous chapter. He had just said at the end of the previous chapter, watch out. If you try to gain the glory of this world, a glory in the normal human experience, you will lose your own soul. So he takes them because he loves them. He lets them see his glory because he has no intention of these losing their soul. And that's why he's showing it to you tonight, by his word. The Lord Jesus wants his followers to think that he is always worth more than even gaining the whole world. And so he takes us here to the mount. So Jesus reveals his glory tonight. And the glory that Jesus reveals gives his church three things. It reveals his divinity, it reveals the centrality of his cross, and it reveals the authority of his word. When he reveals his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's doing so so that his church would see his divinity, see the centrality of his cross, and see the authority of his word. Let's begin 
The glory of Jesus reveals the divinity of Jesus so that you and I could glory in him without measure and without regret. Look at verse 2 of our text. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The shining face, the shining clothes. What is this shining? Beloved, it is the glory of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. It is the manifest purity of his divine nature. That's what this shining is. The manifest purity of his divine nature. And he is revealing it to his disciples and tonight to his church again. At the tomb of his resurrection, you recall that an angel came and sat on the stone. That angel is described this way later in Matthew 28.3. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. That angel had come from the presence of God. He had the purity of the divine nature on him in measure as a creature. Not in absolute as a divine being but in a measure as a creature, and he is radiating it after the tomb had been opened. This is on our Lord Jesus Christ, for it is he that is the source of it. In Psalm 104, verse 1, we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. You are very great, covering yourself as light with a garment. Jesus is revealing his greatness. The manifest purity of his divine nature is being revealed to his disciples so that they would not seek the glories of the world. In Exodus 33, Moses pleaded with God, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will show you my glory from the back. But even, the, even so, I must hide you in the cleft of the rock. And even so, I must put my hand over you until I pass by. Such is the radiance and the purity of the living God. Exodus 24, 17, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Everything that the people of God knew about the radiance and brilliance of the living God is now being revealed to them in the person, Jesus Christ. The key theological takeaway from this face of our Lord Jesus shining like the sun is that we are to see his divinity and not be able to look away. There is nothing brighter for there is no other sun. This is the one and only sun. 
our Lord Jesus generates his own radiance. He does not reflect God's glory like Moses did. Jesus is God's glory. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ is eternal God, equal in power and glory with the eternal Father and the eternal Spirit. It was Jesus Christ in the burning bush, speaking with Moses. It was Jesus Christ in the pillar of fire, leading the people of the Jews out of Egypt. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And this means for us and for our souls that we can glory in Jesus without regret, without moderation. Without regret, without moderation. You see, your heart hungers for glory. And Jesus is showing you his worth here, his divine majesty. Glory in me, he is saying. Glory in me, he is saying. And the closer you look into any man, including yourself, you will find that that man is green with envy, purple with rage, yellow with cowardice, blue with despair, and we could go on. The closer you look into any man, the closer you look, you find disappointment. The closer you look, you look in Jesus Christ, the more pure you find him to be. He is white in glory. We are to set our heart upon him. We can never, ever be accused of inordinate affection for Jesus Christ. We can never be so into Jesus that we would be considered idolaters by God. Never. He is the one and only that you can give every immoderate affection to. Scripture calls it zeal. Second, the glory of Jesus on the mount reveals the centrality of the cross. Look with me at verse 3. And this is going to require us to do a little bit of spade work tonight. But look at verse 3 for starters. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Why are Moses and Elijah there? Well, notably, our Lord summoned them. That's why they are there. The divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ summons whomever he pleases. And he is pleased with Moses, pleased with Elijah, and he's pleased to summon them, just as he was pleased to summon Lazarus from a tomb. So they are there because Jesus summoned them. That is one technical answer that you can be sure is correct. But they are there chiefly as witnesses. There was a two-witness custom in all Old Testament legal code. You were to have two witnesses, three if possible. But what are these two witnessing to? I argue now they are witnessing to the centrality of the cross. God spoke with both Moses and Elijah on a mountain in the past. 
The Old Testament calls it the mountain of God. It's in one place called Mount Sinai, and another place it's called Mount Horeb. It's the same place. On that mountain, the living God spoke with both Moses and Elijah. You can read about it in Exodus 20, 24, excuse me, and 1 Kings 19. Now, when God spoke to Moses and Elijah, he spoke to both of them how he was going to deliver Israel and establish Israel against the designs of her enemies. That's what he spoke to them about. He was going to deliver Israel and establish Israel against the designs of her enemies. But what are Moses and Elijah talking about here? Well, for that answer, we have to look at Luke's account of this same event, the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke tells us what they were talking about. In Luke 9, verse 30, Luke says, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus spoke of the departure of Jesus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what the three of them were talking about. They are speaking about the cross work of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement. And it's all bottled up into one word in Luke's text, his departure. The Greek word that Luke uses for departure is exodon, from which we get an English word, exodus. Luke is telling us that Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension and his enthronement should be viewed as the ultimate and final exodus, the ultimate and final deliverance of God's people from their enemies. But not deliverance from flesh and blood enemies. Not establishing an earthly country. Our enemies are Satan and sin and death, and our country is a heavenly one which happens to be the very country that Moses and Elijah just have been summoned from, the very country that they are actually still standing in on this remarkable mount. What did they talk about? (laughs) They talked about the final exodus of the crucified one, who through his substitutionary death would break all sin's power and death's power and Satan's power over his elect people. And he would liberate them through faith alone and carry them by carrying their own flesh, carry them to the heavenly country. Our key theological takeaway then is that Jesus, in revealing his glory with Moses and Elisha, He is revealing to his church that the cross is the central place to participate in the unending glory of Jesus Christ. There's no obtaining the glory of heaven. There's no obtaining the glory of eternal life. There's no obtaining the glory of the heavenly country except we go to the cross. Paul makes this very clear, I would argue, in Romans 3.20. 
Listen to what he says here. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Who bears witness? The law and the prophets. Who's on this mount with Jesus? Moses, the representative of the law. Elijah, the representative of the prophets. And they are brought to the mount as witnesses to the exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish in delivering his elect people once and for all from sin and condemnation. This means our only hope for heaven, for the glory of heaven, is the hope held out to us by the cross. Listen to how the glory of heaven is described in Revelation 21, verse 22. Tell me what word, well, tell yourself what word you hear twice. Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. It's the Lamb, the Lamb. Why is our Lord Jesus Christ in this scene of celestial glory, in this scene of consummate glory in the heavens, why is the Lord Jesus Christ being presented there in the word, in the terms of the lamb, the lamb? Because he is the lamb who was slain to obtain this glory for his church. Beloved, this means that no glory, no glory is worth your life's full attention except the glory of Christ's cross. This must be to you the wisdom and power of God. If it is not, you are glorying in something that is passing away and shall come under judgment. No glory is worthy of your life's full attention except the glory of Christ's cross. Not the glory of your own well-ordered life, not the glory of your own achievements, not the glory of your children's achievements, not the glory of your lifestyle and your legacy. None of it is a glory that will last. Thank God for all the good. Yes, do thank God for all the good that he performs in your life. But never think that good is glory worthy of eternal adoration. Only the Lamb and his works is worthy of eternal admiration and adoration. And so Paul says in Galatians 6:14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Moses and Elijah are brought to the mount so that we would learn to glory in the cross as they are the two witnesses that the children of God would obtain deliverance from their enemies only by the mediator and his cross mediation. Now, lastly, lastly, the glory of Jesus on the mount reveals the authority of Jesus. Here we have verses 4 through 8, and I think I'll just read it again. Sometimes preachers read it again to stall, 
because they're lacking material? I don't usually have that problem. But I'm going to read it again because I want us to really be fresh with what happens here. Because again, you get to see Peter's great personality come out. <laughs> Peter. We all love Peter. Verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Peter suddenly wants to do something with this revelation of Jesus' glory. And he wants to do something different than what God wants him to do. Peter wants to capture this glory. He wants to bottle it up. If he had the right handler, we might have already been talking how, how high to price the tickets on StubHub to go see the three tents. It never happened, though. You see, Peter wants to contain the glory. He wants to keep it. He wants to fasten the glory of heaven to the earth. But he is wrong in wanting this. And this is why Luke, in his account of the transfiguration, adds these words, not knowing what he said, referring to Peter's remarks and his offer, not knowing what he said. And I think that actually is a very gracious inclusion by Luke, so that we as a church wouldn't think too harshly of Peter here. He wasn't really denying the excellency of Jesus compared to Moses and Elijah. But it sounded like he was. <laughs> but he didn't know what he was really saying, as Luke says. What was Peter's error then? Well, it was a twofold error. First, Peter downgraded the glory of Jesus Christ. By suggesting a dwelling for each man, Peter was equalizing the divine glory with that of Moses and Elijah. They were partakers of the divine glory, not originators. But he says, I'll make a tent for each of you, the three. In verse 5, it is the Father who literally interrupts Peter. While he was still speaking, a voice comes out of the cloud, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It, is, it appears that the opening words of our Heavenly Father, this is my son, are designed specifically to silence Peter, who seems to be overlooking the uniqueness of Christ's divinity. The Father corrects Peter and exalts the son to a place above Moses, above Elijah. Nobody is told in the heavenly voice to listen to Moses or to listen to Elijah. They're told to listen to the son. Not, of course, meaning that Moses and Elijah are to be disregarded as if we could disregard the word of God. But there's a unique 
authority being placed on Jesus Christ that's always been there, but is now being revealed by the Father to the disciples. So this voice from heaven suddenly leaves the disciples prostrate and terrified. For it comes from a sudden cloud, and there is no form, but there is a voice. And then the Lord Jesus comes over, the text says, and he touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. The very careful motions described by Matthew in the text should be an encouragement for all of us, especially when we realize what is being revealed to us on this mount. We have seen the purity of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. He, too, is one of whom we would ordinarily be terrified. For he, too, is the Almighty. And yet he comes over to his disciples. He draws near to them, whatever distance it took, one step or five. He reaches out and touches them. And as he does, he says, rise, have no fear. Beloved, this is a beautiful picture of all that Jesus Christ came to accomplish for us in his mediation as a savior, as a crucified savior. He has come to remove the terror of God from our conscience. He has come to remove the terror of God from our bodies. He has come to reconcile us by fully satisfying all that would call for the wrath of God against us. He has satisfied it all in his own mediation. And he is showing all the church right there in his care for these three how he wants to be regarded before his church for that mercy and tenderness that he died to unite us to. Rise, have no fear. Not because you are without foolishness, but because you are with me, the Lord Jesus is saying. I am yours. I am your mediator, your reconciler, your curse bearer. I am your elder brother. I bring you home and make my father your father. Rise, up, up, have no fear. You know, there's a scene in the book of Revelation where John, as he receives the apocalyptic vision from an angel, he falls down and starts worshiping the angel. And do you remember what the angel did? The angel said, get up, (laughs) don't worship me. I'm not the living God. Remarkably, here in our text, he who is the living God tells his terrified disciples to get up. Stand beside me as brothers. Yes, I am a prince. Yes, I am worthy of all honor and all obedience. Yes, I am worthy of you losing your lives and losing the world to follow. But stand with me. Eat my body. Drink my blood. Live in my heaven 
forever. You are not being regarded as remote subjects in my kingdom. You are my own body. You are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Beloved, this is how the church is to regard her Savior. With this kind of tenderness and never making the mistake in the same regarding that he is without divine majesty. And then verse 6. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Or excuse me, that's verse 8. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Of course, this means Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And the Lord Jesus would fill the frame. That when they look up to the voice that has quieted their fears and has beckoned them into fellowship and friendship, it is the very one whose glory they just saw. Now that's a little discursus on the first error of Peter. Let me briefly work through the second error. The second error was, of Peter was that he wants glory without the cross. Peter's plan is to keep this experience of the transfiguration, to keep it rolling. He wants to manage this mountaintop experience. He wants the glory of the experience to be there for him anytime he wants it. Moses and Elijah and Jesus are, are all talking about the cross, waiting for our Lord at Jerusalem, and Peter is talking about this mountain and this experience. The transfiguration is indeed a taste of the divine glory, but the cross is the door that obtains that glory forever. And Peter had, Peter had lost sight of that. The glory of Christ's kingdom, then, is not revealed, so we can try to contain it and bring it down to the earth. That's not why he reveals his glory here to the church. We are not to try and reproduce his glory with some kind of simulation glory. Perhaps build a giant basilica that requires us to send out our tetzel and collect indulgences from the land. We are not to simulate the glory of Christ's kingdom. What are we then to do with the glory that has been revealed to us? Beloved, we are to count Jesus as of such great worth that we listen to him. That we don't listen to men. They are not the Lord of our conscience. We listen to him. If we have seen his glory as he means for us to see it, we will listen to him. We will have been won over, persuaded, subdued, defeated, taken captive by his word. You see, you're never simply called to just obey the word of God. You are always called to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that he is the son of glory. That he is the son of the father's pleasure. That he is the one who removes the terror from your soul that the wrath of God is not upon you any longer. You are called to believe that he is the glorious one. And then 
Obedience flows from that apprehension of the glory that belief and faith lays hold of. So Jesus shows us his glory so that the words he spoke just earlier bind our hearts even more to him. In verse 27 of chapter 16, right before this mount of transfiguration, he said, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And now we have received a revelation of the glory he has with his Father. Now you might say, but, but Pastor, I really haven't seen Jesus' glory. Well, then I close with these words from the same Peter. Peter said in his second letter, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter has recalled the events upon the Mount of Transfiguration. But then he has said something striking. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, that you will do well to pay attention to. Peter is saying a very simple thing. He's saying that everything he experienced was already revealed in the word. And the word is ample, full, The witness of the word is great and multiple. The glory of Christ has been foretold by God's word. And we all have that word. It is near us, upon our ear, and by grace in our heart. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for helping us fend off the great temptation to gather up in our arms some earthly glory and give our lives to it, and in the process, lose our very soul. For some, Lord, it is simply the glory of unending leisure and freedom. For others, it is the glory of the adoration of men. And we could think of many ways in which we are led astray to try to gain more of the world Yet if we could even gain all of the world, it would not profit our soul. For the glory that is unending is the glory of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, coming into his kingdom, a kingdom that is forever and ever, whose dominion shall never be broken, whose power shall never fail and never suffer fault or defeat. Lord, we pray that you would indeed let us see that which your word reveals to us, even tonight, a glory 
that we can give our whole life to, that we can have immoderate and inordinate affection for, a glory that we can pursue that would even shake up our closest friends' lives. For it is not a foolish thing to fall all the way into the man, the Lord, the God, Jesus Christ. O Lord, grant us to follow him closely, to adore him deeply, to study him faithfully, to not look away from him ever. We pray for this help. In Jesus' name, amen.